Hello and welcome to another installment of BC Museum Portraits. I'm BC Museum Portraits Project Manager. This episode takes us to Salt Spring Island, where I spoke with members of the Salt Spring Museum, Conrad Pilon and Tony Trefall, as well as Collaborative Manager at Salt Spring Island Archives, Chris Marshall. Tony Conrad, thank you for sitting down and, and speaking with me about the, uh, the history of the museum. How did you get involved with the uh, society and the work here on, on Salt Spring Island? Well, I came here to retire, early retirement, and to become a farmer. <laughs> and I saw an ad in the local Driftwood newspaper that the Farmers Institute was building a new livestock barn and were seeking some volunteer labor. And I thought about it and I thought, well, that would be a good thing to do. So I came up and volunteered as working on the barn and ended up working with the fall fair and then being invited to be a director. And so that was like in 1986. And was it a short time span from when you got involved in the society to when you started working in the executive? Here, about two to three years. And yourself? Yeah. I, I came here in 98. I retired from the Northwest Territories and uh, in education and I was looking for a volunteer because I've always volunteered in different things. And so uh, the Farmers Institute interested me. In uh, 99 I started to work with the Fall Fair here, volunteer for the Fall Fair. And by 2004 I was a director at the Farmers Institute. <laughs> and, and, so, and in the meantime we had built the poultry building, oh, yeah. annex building. Annex building, oh yes. Oh yes, we built a lot of buildings here. Well, a lot of the buildings. Conrad and I put the last boards on the on the annex building the night before Fall Fair, the year that it opened, and I can't even remember when that was. Now. <laughs> How did the uh, the Farmers Institute get formed? Wh who were some of the people that were involved with it when you started to volunteer here? The, the history of the Farmers Institute goes back to about eighteen. 50, I would say 59, 60. And the organization itself didn't take flight until about 1895 officially. There was a couple of organizations, mainly orchardists yeah. and fruit growers, yeah. prior to that, before yeah. before it became a farmer's institute. Yeah. Because you've got to remember, the, the, the people who settled this, this island initially had no farming experience at all. Mm. The Farmers Institute would run once a year an annual fall fair starting in 1896. And it would be happening in various places on the island. Primarily, well, the first ones were at, at the top end of the island by, on the road to Vesuvius. Yes. And then, and what then we they call Central moved. now. And then, and then they were being held annually at Man Hall, just around Man Hall where the, where the middle school used to be, the great downtown Ganges. And finally, in 1978, I think it was, they were able to purchase this property. Now, how they purchased that property is a story unto itself. Um, and so this is when the building, the main building that you see over here, uh, got built with the volunteer labor and all the farmers coming together and doing it. But for the most part, it didn't have this particular piece of property. It wasn't even around until late 1978. Before that, the organization existed to put on a community event called the Fall Fair. This was a private farm prior to then. When did it start to think of itself as a museum or something that had artifacts that would be shown at the events. That was be in the late 70s yeah. when they were trying to raise money to move this building to yeah. pay for the, the, 
to move this house from Vesuvius to this location. They got a government grant based on establishing a museum. And that the bones of the grant application was it would become a museum. In addition to the house, what are some of the collections here? The concept of the museum, it's a settler's museum. So we don't just take old stuff. Hmm. We want to know the story. We it want to know who the family was so that we can take it back to the settlers. So anything in here, we try to know the whole story of it. It's not just an old frying pan. It's one that grandma had. Right. And grandma was located somewhere. Was it all items that were donated at once or have you been adding to the collection yeah. here yeah. on the property? Adding to it all the time. It depends what's on the porch in the morning. <laughs> we still get that. A lot of stuff, people just come and leave it on the front porch. Which is not really the way we're trying to do things, so we, it usually doesn't make it into the museum if that's how it comes, yeah. unless there's a way we can trace it. People get in touch with us either through the website or through one or two of the directors of the, of the Heritage Foundation and say, why we have this and we'd be yeah. very much interested in knowing whether or not you want to exhibit it in the museum. Mm. Our criteria is that you link it to the island, you link it to a family on the island, you link yep. it to agriculture, you link it to that's something that's relevant to the museum. We've tried to keep it originally 1850 to 1950 mm. in that time period, but it's, the time period now is, is stretching out a bit because we're getting older. The clock is moving so fast. <laughs> yeah. Fifty years makes a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> are there are there stories from the island that that you're wanting to represent more of in the collection? You're mentioning a lot of this is kind of connected to people that were on the board and so there was often items that came in through that association. Are there any stories or families that you're actively engaging with to, to bring into the fold? Well, I think you have to go back to, to it's a settler's museum. So we're, we're trying to associate with the people that settled Salt Spring and made it the community it is. And that they were basically all farmers in the early days. Because of the way we accepted information or items from, from the people, the museum is a bit eclectic, as you can see. So we are trying to tell the story of the community in a different way through our website. And on our website, we have the story of Japanese, indigenous, uh, black community, and so on and so forth. And that's allowed us to be a little bit more structured because there is none of that structure here. I mean, quite frankly, I mean, we, we accept the things. I mean, I'm not sure how many times we want to move the HMS Ganges around the museum and make it fit where the history should be. We're thinking about that, we're talking about that, but none of us have any real background in terms of curating the museum to make sense of it that way. So what you would see if you walk through this museum from room to room, you'd see a bit of 1800s and you'd see a bit of 1950. But the, the website that we put together a few years ago has that to a certain degree. And the archives website has even better because it has lesson plans, it has all kinds of structured stuff that's very useful for young people to learn about the history of the island. Christina, how did the archives on the Salt Spring come into formation? I think a similar situation. They had a lot of historical bits and pieces that were laying around and where people were dropping off or what do we do with this and elders passing, etc and so had gathered these pieces and then what do you do with them so they i think it was 19 
89 that they began the historical society and the same year started the archives okay. and very loose structure to start yeah. with i'm sure you would have yeah. been familiar the two of you with the early days of the archives and it's come a long way mary davidson was the original began the archives and she's a a founding uh, settler person newcomer to yeah. salt spring and a newcomer as opposed to indigenous i like yeah. to make that distinction but everything was very card paper file uh, cards etc oriented and when Frank Newman came along who was a, had come from Galliano to Salt Spring Island with his partner Gail Newman he in particular began digitizing the collection hmm. and that's when it really those early collections in the archives what were they what were they strong in in terms of the history of, of Salt Spring journals photographs some documentation and then piggybacking on that people even early on I'd say late 80s or, or certainly late or 90s people started to do interviews of those same people because you'd have the photographs and you'd have the documents of preemption sites etc so then you want to catch up well where's the story to this it's a lot about storytelling isn't it whether it's visual like here or whether it's through the archives so now we have a collection we just finally got our audio collection organized but not completely accessible online yet but we have 400 plus audio recordings and a lot of them from settler people and, and including some First Nations where we have permissions. And the biggest challenge with all the recordings is having them transcribed because very few of them are transcribed and once they're transcribed, we pop that word into a, in a keyword search and all of a sudden, wham, on all these references. So the, the audio recordings are very much an untapped resource. So. What are some recent acquisitions or items that have come into the museum and the archives that have surprised you or, or have opened up a new story on the island? Well, for me, one of them, and Christina was involved with that, and that's that carving. I think that carving tells the whole history of Salt Spring and done by a local pioneer. Oh, it's nice to see it up there. I hadn't seen it yet. It looks great. <laughs> to me, a really interesting because it tells the whole history from chopping down the first tree to creating a, a community. Can you remind me who carved it? Volkerson. Oh. And I knew his wife. His wife used to run the walking tours of Ganges. Oh, excellent. Just, just a few years ago. Oh, nice time. Yeah. Two collections come to mind. One is the Horrell Collection which is a very old family name on Salt Spring. And that is such an interesting collection in terms of the, the woman involved in it, Winnie Watmau, who actually had three husbands, and I think lastly ended up with the name Watmau, mm -hmm. but was a whorl at one point. And just her history from the San Juan Islands and all through the Gulf Islands and herself as a, she was five foot nothing. I remember her as a child. She was, very short woman and drove a logging truck and took over one husband's business after another or certainly was a, a huge partnership in it, which was rare at the time. Starting from leaving the San Juans, I think, when she was 15 years old and marrying somebody and coming to Salt Spring Island. So very extensive and interesting history. She was even at one time a warden of the Duke of Penitentiary on Piers Island. And she's a prolific writer, as was her son Charles. So we have a lot of material and we're just starting to go through that. But another collection I'll mention, which just predated that, I think, and because we're going to be doing an exhibit soon, is the Penn Braithwaite Collection. And that's an old island family dating back to in the 1800s, had property on the south end of Salt Spring, down towards Beaver Point area, off of, off of Manhannock Reserve, where the Silt Reserve is. This is an interesting collection because, although there's some documentation, it's almost 
entirely artwork. Mm. And Salt Spring doesn't have an art gallery, per se, not in existing places. Sometimes some things here become that, and we have some pieces of art, but it, we're not really the place for an art gallery. But because we don't have that, and because these, folk, these sketches, watercolors mostly, are a lot of them representative historically, at least some of them are, of times on the island and a little bit in Victoria through some family extended paintings that they've lent to the collection for now. But we've digitized everything, and we're going to be putting it up eventually on a, um, the IK Barber UBC site. But it, it will be accessible through our site, and we are in November having a month. We have the program room at the library, so we'll be having a curated show there with Bryony Penn, who's a, a descendant. And so it's six generations of artists mm -hmm. through her family, very talented people. Mm -hmm. So there'll all be little contributions from all of them and some very interesting photographic backdrops behind them all, so that's a way to bring that to life. And we'd love to have that done at an art gallery, but in the meantime... When you put together your exhibitions, either at the archives or through some of the, the display event days you do, how do you go about building them? We don't have collections per se, we don't have exhibits per se. We have community events, like Fall Fair and Heritage Day, where people come and see what we have. We will attempt we will try to put on new displays in the museum, trying to be thematic, if you like, with either the Fall Fair event or the Heritage Day. But for the most part, we don't have a collection of exhibits other than what you see throughout each of the rooms in the museum here. When we were talking about the various pieces of equipment and whatnot that were on display, particularly at Fall Fair, we, prior to COVID, once a year did a Heritage Day, usually the first Sunday in July. And that was a, a free event. Anybody in the island who, or anybody who was on the island that day in particular could come to Heritage Day and see all of this stuff working. We bake bread in the, in the summer kitchen. Churn butter. Churn butter, people could have bread and butter and, and craftspeople doing leather work or spinning and weaving. We had the Historical Society would be here, and Heritage Day was quite an event. Getting volunteers reignited after COVID has been probably our, one of our biggest challenges, I'd mm -hmm. say. Well, not only volunteers for, to run the fair, but exhibitors. Exhibitors yeah. were way down this year. You know, like we got about 2,200 to 2,300 exhibits. I mean, I'm talking everything from an apple to a, to a donkey, I mean, <laughs> the whole thing, right? But this year, it's probably close to maybe just a little over a thousand, less than half. Yeah. It has had, in my personal opinion, quite an impact on, on volunteers and the community spirit of the island. People have to get back into the idea of doing those things where mm -hmm. they got away from it. Mm -hmm. And what about with the archives? How, how do you go about building your exhibitions? Well, most of our traffic, let's say, is, is online traffic. And just, I'll just a little aside to your question, I guess, for a second, is to say that we, COVID was a bit of a killer for volunteers, definitely. What it did do, though, was allow a lot of people, a lot of spare time, who were looking into the genealogy. We receive hundreds of email requests in a year for information. I'd say COVID bumped that up by another half. Wow. 
we had a lot of people looking into different aspects, writing books, etc. And we've always been, we do a lot of outreach for documentaries because of, uh, you've probably touched on already, the black history here is, is fairly unique. It's a very interesting topic here on Salt Spring and mm -hmm. we are a go-to for people doing black history research to come to the Salt Spring Archives, possibly the museum as well. Mm -hmm. We have a good collection and some good correspondence with living members of families that were here during that time. We do outreach to film producers, documentary producers, people writing books in the States, in Canada, people writing, doing coursework for universities, etc. So there was a lot of that going on. There always is some of that, but I, I think it was upped a lot during COVID. And as well with Japanese internment, there's mm -hmm. some very sad and poignant stories here on Salt Spring. Some success as well but at least in one with in terms of one family but it's a very sad and um, yes. shameful history in terms mm -hmm. of salt spring yeah. and other places but you have to own these things and the archives that's part of that so mm -hmm. in terms of exhibits we've been actually been involved in a japanese internment exhibit and one really interesting thing about that is we put up a hall like this where we're sitting here at the, the Farmers Institute, the museum. They have all these great pictures up and information and it lives on here, maybe changes up a little bit. But when you have an exhibit such as that we've had at the, the library program room, which is a nice large room, modern space, mm -hmm. something like the Japanese internment project, which was very well curated by a local Japanese woman and others, I'm sure. And she had very large images and great captioning and a timeline and it went all the way around the room. And it was up for the better part of a month, I think. Yeah. We had visiting professors, etc., doing talks. The great thing about an exhibit like that is, or the downside of an exhibit like that is, it can live and then it gets shelved or gets taken away by the people that produced it. Mm -hmm. The great thing about that exhibit, and there could be others like it, I can think of a few examples, is that it lives on because we have housed it in the archives and now at the school level whenever the curriculum hits that point mm -hmm. that particular teacher comes and borrows those items from us right. puts them up around her or his classroom and similarly some other things that we curated specifically say for the legion often wants a display so we will put something up for them for November. And, and my co-manager, Caridwin Ross Collins, has developed some really good media outreach and has produced some really nice vignettes of PowerPoint presentation mm -hmm. features that she's put, she puts online at that time of year. And, and we direct the Legion to go to that as well. Maybe the Institute, the Farms Institute, was putting on something down there. Well, they might contact us for documentation pieces, etc., to put in the showcase in the in the foyer of the library so we use that as a presentation space as well and we have a monitor up in the library that we put up a couple of years ago we have a slideshow that runs on continually <laughs> it honors frank newman who both of us have mentioned yeah. that he he has a place of honor up there his his name comes up and then we have a slideshow which is thematic usually to seasons but it can be thematic to anything that's going on in the black history we just recently a couple of months ago we had the copeland family they owned the farm before the Moets bought the farm on St. Mary Day. He was the first elected school board trustee, if you like, one of the first ones on the island. And he enabled Kervin Jones, the first teacher, to get paid. Because from the moment he arrived, the moment Mr. Copeland became a, a trustee, he was getting paid with chickens and eggs and mm. beef and, and vegetables. Families will get in touch with us, and we get that from time to time with families want to know about the history of their family here and whatnot. We just had one request the other day for the Wilson family tree. It's difficult to really translate that. Yeah. We have one of our directors, is Charlie Sampson, 
And during Fall Fair, Charlie entertained people with history of the island here big time. People just loved it because I mean, he, if he, they he, lived on a certain road, they'd ask Charlie, what, like, what did he remember about yeah. those people? <laughs> what are some other current events that you're seeing on the island that are kind of, from a historical mindset, you're, you're seeing a changing the story or, or enriching the story of, of Salt Spring? We just had an election when the major issues were were housing and climate change. I have a large orchard, not large, I got 80 trees, not big, but salt spring is probably as good as it gets. The, the, the impact of climate in the last two years has been incredibly noticeable. I mean, so I think that climate has having and continues, continues to have a, an impact on this island and in many facets of it, and if you're involved with any farming, definitely. Housing to a lesser degree for, for, for because the, the land commission is permitting more housing for farm workers on AR property. So it's less of a problem now for farmers than it was before. But those, those are the only two that I can think of that are current. There was a parade, for instance, a few weeks ago for, uh, for climate change. So yeah. that's, you wouldn't have envisioned that 10 years yeah, ago. Exactly. Um, and I don't mean for climate change. Yeah, I mean yeah. for awareness <laughs> of climate change. It was called On the Rise, and it was basically about awareness and mournful in terms of what's happening with the climate. And in conjunction with that, there was a big mural project. So there's three new murals yeah. in town. So out of, out of grief comes creativity as well, right? So and we're the recipients of some of that at the archives. There have been ventures entered into where we are poised to, to accept some collections on some of the behalf of some of these new societies, new groups, and including things like seed collections. And even during COVID, the whole postcard project happened and we have those. And But I'm thinking climate specifically, there'll be a lot of things I think that'll come our way that will document this time, right? Mm -hmm. So. Uh, given that they predict that Ganges will be underwater in 50 to 80 years. What are some projects that you're looking forward to in the future? Well, one of the things that we're involved in now, and I hope that we will make better inroads into, is with Indigenous peoples in this area. We, The Historical Society is part of a grant that's going on that we're putting up extensive pieces of signage, huge, huge pieces, that talk that are from the First Nations people. It's not us as settlers talking about them, it's them talking about themselves. So we've been going to elders and, and youth. And what we're really looking to do is to cement the idea with people that this is presence, it's not history mm -hmm. in this case. Although we're in archives, we're talking about now, these, these people are present, this is their unceded territory. And we want to have more of uh, that, not only visual, visual in the community, as a visual in the community, but represented on our website. So that involves a lot of protocol and relationship building with First Nations mm -hmm. people, as well as permissions for some things. So mm -hmm. that's something that I think going forward we'll be, we'll be honoring more and more. Mm -hmm. At the same time, with just in terms of the day-to-day -day functioning of the archives, we're an all-volunteer outfit, as I think the yeah. museum is here, which is pretty tough because we don't have any base funding at all. Yeah. And we pay rent to the library, so we'll be looking for uh, maybe a more reliable stream of funding because we have equipment that desperately needs replacing, etc. People power is low, but also I suppose machine power. We just we can't keep up. So, yeah. so that those are our challenges going forward. You cannot run a museum like this on volunteer labor. That we tried that for a couple of years and it just drove you crazy because if somebody's volunteer to be here Thursday morning. 
and they have another appointment, they just don't come. Mm -hmm. So we developed having a sitter here, a, a greeter, and we have to pay that person to be here. But that's when the people started coming to the museum on a regular basis. So we have to somehow or other figure out some income stream to, if nothing else, cover a greeter or a, a sitter. Mm -hmm. I think going forward for the museum, it'd be nice to having you know, thematic rooms and whatnot, because we have a lot of school tours here. We try to build in some fun with it with the teachers as well. And, and the, the school tours are becoming more and more popular. Having some, some themes, having a better overall presentation, much more structured rather than just being like it is now, to me, I think it's something we need, we need to do. There's a, this place has got a richness of history. Uh, it, it's just amazing. And we can still talk to some of the, 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 the living descendants of some of this stuff and get even more information if you want to. I did a little history on the, the Bittencourt family a year and a half or two years ago, and I was fascinated to learn about how the Bittencourts got here, what they did here, how, the, how their nephew ended up being the guy who was in a shootout with rum runners from the States and Ganges. I said, I mean, I'm reading the history of this family and I'm like, I didn't know anything about this family before. So there is, and to tell those stories in here, we can have a theme on the bidding course, a theme on the, on the Samson's. We're just presenting a veneer of what's going on as opposed to any analysis or discussion about it. Mm -hmm. The archives has by alphabetical topic the names of the families and if you go to their section on the, the audio one of the audios is a Fred Bittencourt and and done with CBC mm. and I learned about his uncle from listening to this audio <laughs> that they have on the archives I mean you have an immense library of information and like you said to have it in a way that you can press a button and have all this other stuff come up so that it's catalog is, 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 is it, it demands work but it's really engaging history of the island, and people enjoy that stuff. People like those stories about what's going on and what's happened. So to do that in this building, to, to, get, to give it a, a different... Well, Tony, Conrad, Chris, thank you all for coming today and, and having this conversation. It's great. This has been another BC Museum Portrait. BC Museum Portraits is done in partnership with the BC Museum Association. To hear more portraits and view the accompanying images made by project photographer Taiyu Hayward, please go to museum.bc.ca. Thank you very much for listening.